Okay, this is from Matthew 5, verses 13 to 20. You are salt for the earth, but if salt loses its taste, what can make it salty again? It is good for nothing and can only be thrown out to be trampled under people's feet. You are light for the world. A city built on a hilltop cannot be hidden. No one lights a lamp to put it under a tub. They put it on the lampstand where it shines for everyone in the house. In the same way, your light must shine in people's sight so that seeing your good works, they may give praise to your Father in heaven. Do not imagine that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have come not to abolish, but to complete them. In truth, I tell you, till heaven and earth disappear, not one dot, not one little stroke is to disappear from the law until all its purpose is achieved. Therefore, anyone who infringes even one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be considered the least in the kingdom of heaven. But the person who keeps them and teaches them will be considered great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, if your uprightness does not surpass that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never get into the kingdom of heaven. Our second reading is from Isaiah 58, 1 to 12. Shout for all you are worth. Do not hold back. Raise your voice like a trumpet. To my people, proclaim their rebellious acts. To the house of Jacob, their sins. They seek for me day after day. They long to know my ways. Like a nation that has acted uprightly and not forsaken the law of its God. They ask me for laws that are upright. They long to be near God. Why have we fasted if you do not see? Why mortify ourselves if you never notice? Look, you seek your own pleasures on your fast days and you exploit all your workmen. Look, the only purpose of your fasting is to quarrel and squabble and strike viciously with your fist. Fasting like yours today will never make your voice heard on high. Is that the sort of fast that pleases me? A day when a person inflicts pain on himself? Hanging your head like a reed, spreading you out sackcloth and ashes. Is that what you call fasting? A day acceptable to Yahweh? Is not this the sort of fast that pleases me? To break unjust fetters, to undo the thongs of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free, and to break all yokes? Is it not sharing your food with the hungry and sheltering the homeless poor? If you see someone lacking clothes, to clothe him, and not to turn away from your own kin. Then your light will blaze out like the dawn, and your wound be quickly healed over. Saving justice for you will go ahead, and Yahweh's glory come behind you. Then you will cry for help 
and Yahweh will answer. You will call, and he will say, I am here. If you do away with the yoke, the clenched fist, and malicious words, if you deprive yourself of the hungry and satisfy, satisfy the needs of the afflicted, your light will rise in the darkness, and your darkest hour will be like noon. Yahweh will always guide you, will satisfy your needs in the scorched land. He will give you strength to your bones, and you will be like a watered garden, like a flowering spring, whose waters never run dry. Your ancient ruins will be rebuilt. You will build on age-old foundations. You will be called beach breach mender, restorer of streets to be lived in. In my mid-teens, I was the leader of a guide patrol, and we were preparing to go to camp. And our guider had suggested that each patrol should have an evening practicing camping skills like putting up tents and lighting fires. Now, I was, in fact, I am pretty good at putting up tents, but lighting campfires was always a challenge. And a friend of the family invited me and the rest of my patrol to go to her, her large grounds just outside Edinburgh to practice lighting fires in an open field where we wouldn't do much damage. And she dropped in the added incentive, there are plenty of cowpats you can use as fuel. Well, that all seemed good, so off we went, and a fine time was had by all, but the fire wouldn't light at all. In the end, we got to camp, and it was all fine, and I learned about lighting fires with various artificial aids and a competent guider to teach me. And this week, as I've been working on the sermon, I discovered what I had done wrong. I had not added salt to the dung. We hear that phrase, salt of the earth. You are the salt of the earth, or he's the salt of the earth, and it's obvious what it means. It means people who are just good solid, getting things done, sorting stuff out, laughing it off, being dependable when we need them to be people. You heard this phrase, salt is the salt of the earth. But that's the meaning that comes from this passage, not that underlies it. The idea of being a light in Jesus' teaching there is much easier to understand. We know about light. We can more or less imagine something about being stuck in the dark. We can imagine being part of a society where there's no electricity and so no electric light. Only just, but we can, if we work at it, imagine it. So there's content there that we can make sense of. We can see the impact of a city on a hill and how it's visible from all around, the way in which it draws eyes, draws travelers. We can understand the daftness of lighting something and then hiding it. But salt of the earth, and even more significantly, salt that loses its nature that ceases to be salty. I'm told, chemically, salt is stable. That is, it does not lose its saltiness. But see, here's the thing. Cooking, nourishing and creating community, was done in and on an oven outside the house in the villages where Jesus lived. And the oven was fueled with animal dung. And in order to make the dung burn, it was salted. Salt was added to increase its flammability. I need the chemists to help me here. And I'm hoping this interpretation is right, because it works, okay? Because it seems to me both to solve a problem with the text and, even more importantly, give us something of the vigor with which Jesus is speaking. 
and which we might want to hear. This is the problem with these kind of texts. We know them so well that we miss the energy that's there when Jesus is talking about them. It helps with the text because salt that is used in this way does lose its saltiness. It does become useless. It gets um, used up and it gets thrown away. But even more importantly, it's what it's saying. You are the ones who get in among stuff, who change it, who make it happen, who enable the cooking, the bubbling up and the transforming of the world, which the creative chef, God, who creates and sustains life, is continually doing. One of the commentators phrased it thus, the believers are most useful when they are stirring up the shit. Now, there are all sorts of interesting things to say about salt and about its properties, about cleansing, about stinging, about purifying wounds, about preserving. And all of those might be and are helpful pictures for seeing what believers are and might be in living in the world. But I want us to stay this morning with this salt being added to the dung to make it burn and to take it in the image of light and to explore what they might mean for us here and now as us. One of the most famous sermons on this passage in an earlier generation was preached by Martin Niemöller, the German theologian, in 1936, in a nation that had elected Hitler to be its leaders. They elected him on a ticket of protecting the nation and getting rid of the hated outsiders and restoring former honour. And Niemöller preached on this passage. And the church was coming under pressure to conform, to ease up on some of its weirdness. Most particularly, though not only, around who could and could not be members. This was at a point when anti-Semitic laws and anti-all other, the other laws were coming into force. And the state was trying to remake the church in its own image and to bring it under control and to enforce its own rules on the believers. And many found in that state a way of being that they wanted to espouse and saw in Hitler a savior sent from God. And that was the language that was being used. So they were content with what was demanded from the church. But there were others for whom this was unacceptable. And by this point, by 1936, they were beginning to come into real conflict with the powers that be. And Niemöller preached on this passage one Sunday with the comment, I must preach this now because I may not be here next week to preach it. And he wasn't. He was arrested in the following week and he was imprisoned. And he was actually sentenced to death, but he wasn't executed and he survived the war and went on to write all sorts of really important theology. But in preaching this text, he reflected that in his context, there were attempts to shut the church up and to shut it down. And he said, we are told we will be influential if we harmonize. And he went on to argue that harmonizing was not what being salt and light was about. And at the heart of his argument in that difficult time, in that easy-to-compromise time, and in that uncertain about what the future might hold time, was that if the church is, was that the church is salt and light, according to Jesus. Not that the church should go away and be salt and light, or that they should have conferences to learn how to be salt and light, or any of the exhorting ways in which we tend to read this. Jesus does not tell those around him that they should be salt and light and that we ought to go away and work out what it would look like. He tells them they are salt and light. And therefore there is a significance in the way they are living and looking. And there is no getting away from it. They cannot avoid this. They are 
salt and light. The idea of a city on a hill, which is part of all this imagery, has resonance for us. It has been used often through history. One of the ways it's been used is is that the, the USA applied it to itself, a city on a hill. The community deliberately founded with certain, I didn't know you were coming this morning, but hey, there we go, with certain ideals and certain intentions and a very new thing setting up the USA, if you think about it, the desire to live up to the best vision of what it meant to be human. And this idea of a city on a hill demonstrating how to live well, what a good society set free from all the constraints and oppressions of the old world would look like was a driving force. It drove those who first worked out how to organize and be the USA, a city on a hill that would show how to be human well. And I'm just going to leave that there and remind you that for Jesus' first hearers, they didn't know about the USA, but they did know about Rome. And Rome referred to itself as a city on the hill and a light for the world because Rome brought peace and prosperity and unity and strength and protection So when Jesus says to this crowd standing around him in the Judean countryside, most of whom were not the elite and not the powerful and not even all that happy with Rome, you are the light of the world. Well, it sounds just as strange as the blessings that we were listening to and considering last week. Blessings on the mourning and the meek. Blessings for those who are poor and those who seek justice. And of course it does because it's all of a piece. Our layout of the word separates them. But in the way Matthew has written it, what we get is, blessed are you when people revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth. And if salt loses its saltiness, how can it be restored? For it is no longer good for anything but is thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A city built on a hill cannot be hidden. Nobody lights a lamp and puts it under a basket, but puts it on a stand so the whole house is lit up. Let your light so shine that others may see your works and give glory to your Father in heaven. The blessing and the being salt and light go together, and the blessing is not as Niemöller was being instructed, settling down and blending in. It is being that irritant salt and that radiance light. So to start with, what Jesus is telling them is that whatever they see and whatever the powers that be tell them, it is not Rome that is ultimately in charge. The world is not enlivened and enlightened by Rome and its power and its prestige, but by this crowd of people who see in this man the presence of God who is doing things differently. That's the first thing they need to believe for any of this to make any sense. That what they are told about power and authority, about reality and what makes the world work is not true. That was what Niemöller was saying to his congregation. They were told if they wanted to be part of society and wanted to serve society well and wanted to see their friends and their family and all that they cared about thrive and develop, then what the state power was doing was what was needed. And to influence that and be part of it, the church had to be in line with it. And Niemöller argued on the basis of this passage, no. And it's hard to believe. It's hard when all the power... And even more, all the good reason seems on the side of Rome as the light of the world. Or Hitler as the one sent to save the nation. It's not hard for us to question here, to question them. 
But at that time, it was hard to believe. How could you, standing on a hillside in a small, unimportant country that wasn't self-determining, and standing there not even as one of the powerful ones, but just ordinary, just trying to make enough to survive and finding at least of some of what Rome offered hope. There was stability, there was an increase in trade, there was a stable currency. But how could they believe that they were the light of the world? And yet that was the first step in daring to see and to live the kingdom. Believing that the real center of what is, the real reality, that which will last... That which is the coming kingdom is not situated in political power or economic control, but in those who live as the people of God so that the kingdom comes in and through them. But it comes with a warning. To lose the power of salting is to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. To be a light under a basket is pointless. It's not that there's punishment for being these things. It's not even that to be these things is not to be loved by God. It is that it is to be useless and irrelevant. Salt trampled underfoot is not being punished. It's being ignored and pushed aside. A light under a basket is not being punished. It's being useless. The aim of Jesus' words here is not to threaten them. It's not to say that unless they do what they should, whatever that is, they will be cast away from God's presence. Rather, that they will not be of use in the kingdom that Jesus is preaching about. Pause on that for a moment. Jesus doesn't say, go and do these things. He says, you are these things. By virtue of being, we are this. Not by what we do, not by the decisions we make. What we do, the decisions we make, may determine how. How we are salt and light. And that must give us pause, for a city on a hill cannot be hidden. We are seen. Let your light shine so that they may see your works, and through that see the God you worship. What we do and who we are shows the God we worship. The salting we offer to the fuel around us shows us bringing life, energy, and ferment, or being fit only to be thrown out, and so shows whether the God we worship is about life or about death. This is not trivial stuff. When people look at cities on hills, they see what that city is devoted to. When the light shines, our deeds are seen, and the divinity we are serving becomes evident. And Jesus leaves his hearers in no doubt that the God about whom he is talking is not to be taken lightly. It is a God who calls us to live in particular ways, and Jesus does not diminish this in any way. The people Jesus uses as a standard and a contrast here are not those who trifle with religion. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law really believe this stuff and really believe it matters. And they're not concerned with finding ways round the requirement of the law, but upholding it. And they're concerned that those who do not, who do not live properly according to the law are kept out. And there's the difference that Jesus is pointing out. The nation called to be a light on the hill, a light for all the world, has become, in the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, a restrictive set of practices, such that even those who are part of the nation are not acceptable. Those who are not able to keep the law fully were regarded as sinners, as the outsiders, the ones we will see as his ministry goes on, Jesus mixing with and calling in. 
And when he tells those listening that he has not come to destroy the law but to fulfill it, that none of it will pass away, it's instructive to read that together with what he actually does. For he breaks the law in the interpretation of the scribes and the Pharisees. When he heals on the Sabbath, when he welcomes the touch from those who are unclean with leprosy or menstrual bleeding, when he encourages his disciples to eat grain picked on the Sabbath, and all of these well, what do you call them? Breaking of the law? Discounting of the law? All of them are about inclusion. They're about loving and welcome, about telling people that the kingdom is with them and for them. The fulfillment of the law here is not about the minutiae he challenges the Pharisees about later, tithing mint and cumin, washing vessels in the correct way. It's about being salt that makes creative life happen. It's about being light that draws people to the love and the welcome of God. We are going to salt the fire. We are going to light up the world. The question is how? How are we going to do it? Are we going to do it with energy and verve and self-giving? Are we showing the God to whom we are devoted is the God we meet in Jesus? And here's how we know. Is how we live in line with how Jesus lives? For he is what it is to be human. This is what it means to fulfill the law. The life lived fully. The life that God calls us to in the world and in community. There's an old saying within the Jewish faith that if one person for one day lives the law in its fullness, then the kingdom will come. And those who follow Jesus claim that is who Jesus is. When he says here he's come to fulfill the law, this is what it means. That in his living, what the law is for is fully completed and lived out. And so if we are living his life, living what he lives, the kingdom is coming. And that will lead us into a righteousness that far exceeds those whom he holds up to exemplars. Those whose religion was serious and stable and real and which excluded and judged and created limits and ins and outs. And in Jesus we see not trivial, not fluff and froth and no real edge, but the edge, the challenge, the demand is not on those with whom we disagree or those whose lives seem to be outside the kingdom. It is to us. Are we salting the fire on which nourishment and flourishing and community is dependent? Or are we so insipid that we are just ignored? Are we living in ways and displaying a life that when people look at us, they see the, Jesus, the God that Jesus reveals? Or do they see some other divinity? or power, or anger, or punishment. Because the point is, we don't get a choice in this. We will either stir things up or be ignored. We will either let God see the, let people see the God we know in Jesus, or some other power and presence. It's going to happen, we cannot opt out. Over the next few weeks, the lectionary will lead us on through the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. And more detail and more questions and more aspects of who we are and how we are will be considered. But last week and this week, what we're getting is the introduction. The nature of the kingdom, belonging to and seen in the poor, the mourning, the hungry for justice, those who show mercy, the peaceful ones, and the ones who, in the face of power and common assumption about reality, will, indeed must, live differently. And the reality of that that if we are the people who follow Jesus, we will be the agents of fire and ferment. We will reveal who we are committed to. 
And we do it best, we do it most fully by living the life of Jesus. A life that was marked by radical openness to the other. By imagination of a new way of being. By friendship and welcome. By challenge to the powers that be, not to defeat them, but to renew them. And by living all that with such fullness that in the end the powers that be, both seen and unseen, killed him. And living it with such fullness that the love that is the life of God couldn't be ended by such a death, but was raised again. And so calls us to confidence and courage to live without the defenses and the constraints and the fear that so often determines who we are. To live fearlessly and hopefully and Jesusly is to be salt and light and to be part of the way the kingdom comes.